Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. The following podcasts do not follow our usual format. They contain excerpts from interviews that didn't fall under the umbrella of the typical podcast, but we still wanted to share the information with you. Please enjoy. This section is on mindfulness. I discuss constants, mindfulness, being present, which can be harder on some days, and the third place. I've recently turned to mindfulness. There's a lot of talk about stress in the workplace and all of the above. For me, I balance pharmacy, pharma. At the moment, we're doing some work in the house, plus just well, I'd like to say catching up with friends, but that's become a little bit less. And last week I was in Sydney, next week I'm in Bendigo. It's just it's a little bit insane. So for me, I'm like if I can keep some constants in my life, then maybe a ten minute mindfulness. I use Smiling Mind. Um, I did that this morning, and then I was in Sydney last week, and it was so insane with conference that I couldn't even find ten minutes. Like it was so bad. So trying to do things like that because yeah, I guess we're all talking about it, everybody's thinking about it and being present. But it's really, really tricky when your mind has basically been like a teenager running rampant for a very long time and you're trying to bring it back into line to focus. I find that really tricky. So some days, so easy. Other days, really challenging. Um, But, yeah, and I listen to podcasts and things like that, like um, people who I love listening to people's life stories that will distract me from anything. But I find, yeah, a lot of people living inside their head. And we had a guy do a presentation at Cycle. Um, I wish I remembered his name, but he was he was talking about a place called the third place. So people go to work, they have a work mentality, then they come home and they bring the work mentality and then everyone tries to avoid them when they're at home and they need to find a space in the middle. So it's not about going straight home and it being about that time. Like if you take 15 minutes to yourself, then you lose 15 minutes with your family. It's more like take that 15 minutes, have a shower, clear your head, get in a totally different frame of mind. And they talk about the gap between something happening and your analysis of it and how that then affects you. Um, And it's that gap where you can really undo yourself. Um, And I found that really, really interesting. He was very relatable and he was also incredibly funny. So we always have one of those motivational speakers at the time, but balancing mental health is always an interesting challenge. Liam Murphy shares his analogies. He discusses apps, breathing techniques, some enlightening conversations he has had with patients and grounding objects. I really like, there's a few analogies and um, the Headspace app was one that I recommend to a lot of people, but the analogy of um, mindfulness essentially being standing beside a busy road and each passing car is represents passing thoughts and how it's really easy to just jump in and play in amongst the traffic. But the idea of mindfulness is essentially to train yourself to be able to sit back um, they use a ha- the analogy of sitting back in a hammock, um, sitting back and just acknowledging that the cars are coming past, but not allowing yourself to get caught up in the traffic that's going along there. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Sam Harris, who I believe articulates the topic of mindfulness better than anyone that I've heard. Uh, and him sort of talk about how it doesn't have to also be that 10 to 15 minutes. Once you've given yourself the skills and you practice meditation and mindfulness, 
It can be as simple as engaging with one breath just to center yourself and bring yourself back into the the point or into the moment that you're in. Um, I find breathing techniques. I quite often recommend breathing techniques for people um, with working as a locum. I am often only ever having one or two interactions with people. Um, and I was reflecting on it the other day when I was working in New South Wales that it can be quite confronting because I always like to ask people how they're going with their medications and how, you know, especially with stuff like mental health medications and antidepressants and anti-anxiety, it can be something for some people because of previous stigma that is really held, you know, quite tightly and, and it's it's quite a personal and private thing for them. And to just have someone, you know, that they've never seen before questioning them on how their medications are. But not all of those conversations are great sometimes they're a bit shut off and you you realize that you're not going to get anywhere if you try to push the, push the issue. But other times it's, you know, you have some fantastic conversations with people and you you investigate what they do and how they go about um, managing their stress outside of their med- medication regimes. Um, one thing that I often recommend to people is breathing techniques if they haven't previously employed it. There's um, a doctor... Um, uh, integrative medicine specialist over in the States, Dr. Andrew Weil, who um, promotes the 478 breathing technique, um, which is essentially breathing in through your nose for four seconds, holding your breath for about seven seconds, and then breathing a long, slow out breath through your mouth for eight seconds. Um, I saw a lot of click clickbaity articles um, initially when it was coming out that, oh, do this breathing technique and you'll fall asleep within a minute, or, you know, and it's it's not quite that. Um, it's something that you have to actually train yourself to to get better at and shutting off and then focusing in on the breath. Um, I met a really fascinating lady um, in my travels uh, last year and she'd been through quite a bit of trauma. And one of the interesting things when we were talking about it, she made a mention of, you know, breathing's great, but if someone's really, really stressed out and really anxious, it's not always going to be the best thing because they can't even get to the point where they're gathering themselves to hold on or to focus on the breath. Um, and an, a recommendation that she had been told that she had found worked work quite well was um, getting a rock um, and putting that in her hand and just focusing all your thoughts and all your energies and everything towards the rock um, and then allowing that to be the grounding experience then that then, then can progress on to um to focusing on the breath and other things and your mindfulness and so that's a good stepping stone when people are quite like really quite anxious i found myself over winter um having a rock in my pocket sometimes or sometimes when i work and i don't always have it on me but it it can be a really great tool to just pull out and give to a patient quite often they're a bit dumbfounded when they get it but you know some people are really stressed when they're coming into the pharmacy and if you can just sort of cut the cake for a moment and just you know, really level with them, um, it can make their experience um, in the pharmacy a lot better. And it's it's really surprising how grateful they can be of having something so simple and something that they weren't expecting, um, you know, really being able to bring that back to the situation. This segment is on international pharmacy practice. Ross Yuki gives an example of a pharmacy model that has been recently developed in Canada. He also discusses funding and vaccinations. One of the uh, 
some of our recent graduates who I know, um, uh, husband and wife team, uh, both pharmacists, and they they purchased uh, they built their own pharmacy, uh, and and when you walk in there, what you see is a waiting area, and examination rooms, and the tiniest tiniest little dispensary that is barely legal because there actually is a a minimum size for a dispensary, but their entire business model is built upon consultations, not dispensing. It's only there for convenience. <laughs> uh, and, and so a pretty gutsy model uh, for a couple of young pharmacists. Uh, so they do uh, uh, injections, they do uh, consultations for diabetes and hypertension and, and uh, mental health, uh, and, and their examination rooms, I think, are always full. So uh, that's that's their model of care, and I, I see that as being uh, 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 part of the sort of the new wave. That gets us to a question about funding. So in Australia, we have a universal <coughs> health insurance, and that pays for not unlimited, but generally speaking, a, a general practitioner can say, well, this fits within this particular funding arrangement, so I can claim this particular item number for it. In, in all practicalities, it's an unlimited system as far as that is concerned. In fact, I've seen doctors claim body piercing as a, yeah. Wow. Um, I think if the government knew that sort of thing was being claimed, they would have mm. a on it. But anyway, so in Canada, in that particular system that you just showed for that, that couple, is there a, a public funding system that they can access or is it all through privately funded or private health insurance funded or how would how they sustain that business model? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so our system is similar to yours in that it's federally funded, but it's administered at the level of the state. Uh, and so we have 13 different systems, which is horribly inefficient. Uh, and so it really depends on what province you are in. Um, in our province, uh, we have our, one of the better uh, funding models. And so if you're a resident of the province, you're entitled to, to, um, to receive services from your pharmacist and it's paid out of the public purse. Uh, um, we have a system of um, that uh, that covers that. Uh, we have private insurers as well, uh, but uh, and some of the private insurers will pay, for example, for a, a cardiovascular risk assessment uh, if it's done, you know, according to their criteria. Um, it's not terribly well utilized uh, by pharmacists, but but there is a system in place, so we we can you know we can charge for a uh, a consultation uh, under certain criteria and follow up visits uh, as as deemed professionally necessary by the by the pharmacist. Uh, so we do have that system, but some provinces don't have any of that right. uh, opportunity. Uh, and so I was just saying we we just did a review for um, uh, opportunities for hypertension management across the country, and it goes anywhere from zero zero remuneration opportunity to um, in certain circumstances up to $150 for a yearly assessment and $20 for each follow-up visit. Um, so, and a lot of things in between. So it, it's, it's all over the place. One of the things that we find here is that, um, so first of all, pharmacists are the only registered health professional that doesn't have access to the Medicare system. Now, those other health professionals don't have necessarily broad access, but they've got some. Um, a pharmacist who provides an immunization 
especially if you've got one on the national immunization program that is a free vaccine, the administration fee is not fee free. And Medicare will cover the administration fee if done by a doctor, but not by a pharmacist. Mm, yeah. So people get this perception that, well, the pharmacist is charging us more. Um, but that's not the case. Yeah. You're, you're actually paying for your Medicare fee, but it's being claimed on your behalf, so you never see the transaction. Mm -hmm. um, is there... So in the, in the provinces where there is good funding, is that funding equal, for instance, to what a, a, a general practitioner might be getting for that service if it was the same service, or is it a different system? You know, I, I must say, I don't know what, what a general practitioner gets paid for a vaccination. They never particularly did very many of them to begin with. Uh, it was public health that, that did them. Um, I'm pretty sure that in most provinces, uh, vaccination is covered by the government uh, uh, system, uh, and that includes the cost of the vaccine as well. So for a flu vaccine, uh, if you want travel vaccination, you have to pay for that by yes. yourself. And and not all provinces allow uh, injection beyond that of a flu shot. Okay. But but some provinces like Alberta, um, some pharmacists are setting up travel clinics because in our cold long winter people want to go somewhere warm and and uh, so they need uh, they need to go somewhere where people know what what uh, travel vaccinations they need. And so pharmacists are are filling fulfilling that role. Okay. Interesting. So the situation that we currently have, and actually something I'm working on for FIP is about trying to create a, a standard around travel vaccination and travel medicine by pharmacists. So I got that yesterday. I haven't read it yet. Um, I haven't had a chance. But in, the, in Australia, we have situations where we've got, you know, influenza vaccine is provided by pharmacists in every state, but the age at which it can be done is mm -hmm. different. We'll have a situation where in Tasmania, for instance, meningococcal vaccine was allowed to be provided by a pharmacist for a short period of time to cover a, a, a spike, and then that permission was taken away again. It was temporary only. Mm. You know, um, did a great job, but no, you don't get ongoing access to those things. So we, we still are at that situation where with vaccines in Australia by pharmacists, because it is a new role, um, it is not yet consistent and it is still a bit of a you know, trading game, but we'll get there where it will be universal. What we're trying to demonstrate, I guess, is that administration of medications via an injection is universal if the health professional is provided with the same standard of training. And therefore, it is uh, makes no sense to restrict which particular medications or vaccines, for instance, are provided in that manner. Um, um, yeah, it's interesting. There was a, a recent crisis in the province of Saskatchewan where, um, for methadone, uh, as a physician, you have to have special authorization to to be able to prescribe methadone. And, and in that province, all the methadone prescribing physicians lost their license for various reasons. And so suddenly there were no methadone prescribers. And so pharmacists stepped in and uh, are are now prescribing methadone, uh, uh, whereas previously that was never permitted. Uh, but they stepped in to, to fulfill a need, uh, and um, you know that's that's kind of interesting. Now whether or not that will continue, I don't know. But 
for the travel vaccine thing, I, I should put you in touch with a former PhD student of mine who is actually, she's written a, an entire supplement on, on pharmacist vaccination for the Canadian Pharmacist Journal, which is coming out uh, next month, I think. Um, but she's, she's, um, she's doing a lot of work in that, in that area. So uh, you may be interested to speak to her. Steve Morris shares that issues are broadly the same everywhere. It's only the context that is different. So what's interesting is that the issues are exactly the same. So what would you be talking about in any system? You know, the problems with uh, with medicine's uh, misadventure, the problem with communication, the problem with fragmentation, you know, um, post-discharge, uh, how do you ensure patients are on the right medicines by the time they get to the GP and, and then the community pharmacy? So well, my view is the issues are the same, the context is the different. So the drivers and levers you have to enable some changes for improvement are different based on each system. But the issues around medicines are broadly the same, whatever international jurisdiction that you're working, I imagine. And often I think we do have to reflect on when we're talking about international experience and international success of a particular initiative, we really have to be context-specific because sometimes those interventions worked because of the, the context in which we're, that they were put in place. Simon Carroll discusses his motto for charity, it being voluntary and not having middle management. He discusses his goal and the accountability of the organisation. In 2010, my wife and I started a charity called Global School Partners. Um, basically, what we are looking to do is support children living in poverty with their education and health. And so our model works by um, partnering schools in Australia with schools at this stage in Africa, and we're just about to branch into parts of Asia, into Vietnam. and what we try and do is actually support those children to get an education. We deal directly with the children and with the schools and with their families. Um, one of our mottos is we don't want to make any rich men richer, so we, we make sure that we deal directly at the grassroots. We don't have the middle management, if I can call them that, spinning off half the money. We are a totally 100% uh, voluntary organisation, so all of the work that we do is, is on a voluntary basis. So we can give guarantees to the people who donate um, that 100% of their money goes to the cause, 100% of their money goes to whatever um, cause or project they've donated it for. In addition to that, um, we actually believe in 100% accountability. So we'll show uh, people exactly where their money's gone, what we've used it for specifically, and so they know exactly the outcome of their, of their funding. This segment is on rural versus metropolitan pharmacy. Amy Page discusses that the best advice is to go into rural pharmacy for a period of time. And she discusses her time traveling and the opportunities that arose and also the importance of skills and network development. The best advice I've had for my career was that, which is often said to younger pharmacists, which is to go rural for a while. So I was very lucky that after I'd been registered for a year, we left our home in Melbourne and bought a caravan and travelled around Australia. So we worked our way around Australia. My husband's an electrician, so we took it in turns working. It was always a competition to see who could get the first job in the next town that we were going to. 
because the one who didn't get the job was then looking after the kids. Um, I think going rural accelerated my skills development and also taught me that I needed to develop a really good network of people that I could contact when I had a question or a scenario or a concern that I couldn't answer myself, which even though my practice might not have been any more isolated, well, in within the four walls of the pharmacy in a metropolitan or a rural, rural area, the perception that I needed to develop those support networks and those channels, I think, made a big difference. Um, and I've continued to enjoy reaching out to people that I know are experts in a particular area or bouncing ideas off other people. And I think part of that was from the experience of going rural. Um, additionally to that, I just got to experience a lot more things. So because I locumed as we travelled, I worked in a lot of different areas. So I got exposed to a lot of different things that were an issue in regional areas and also saw the, how culture change subtly from one little one town to another um, as well as that it was an awful lot of fun um, and then I was in a town for Geraldton for three month stint to work on HMRs and RMMRs the quality use of medicines at the aged care facility um, to support one of the local community pharmacy owners who was an amazing mentor and support for me while I was there. Um, just was an amazing pharmacist, an amazing person. Um, and another opportunity came up while I was there to work as the rural pharmacy academic or the rural pharmacy liaison officer role at the University of Western Australia in Geraldton um, at a place called the Western Australian Centre for Rural Health. Um, and they did a lot of non-traditional pharmacy placements or interprofessional placements. So I was responsible for the pharmacy component of those interprofessional placements. So they use a service learning model of teaching, which was because there weren't enough health professionals in the area, students under supervision of clinical academics were then clinical educators were then delivering a lot of the services. So they were in embedded in places that often wouldn't have had access to a health professional. But because that program was developed around allied health, like OT and speech therapy and physio, it meant that pharmacy went in with them too. So we had students embedded with me in the aged care facilities, the schools. Um, we took the students out for one week at a time with the Aboriginal academic and I doing cultural awareness training for the students in a remote area. Um, it was an incredible learning experience, an incredible experience all around and so professionally rewarding. Um, and I really believed in what we were doing it was a great placement for both the pharmacy students and other allied health. And if I'd stayed in the city, I never would have got the opportunities to do any of that. Um, and out of that job at the West Australia Centre for Rural Health, I then started my PhD with a supervisor I'd met through there as well. So it all 
every opportunity I've had has pretty much stemmed from going rural. Michael Troy shares on relationships, rapport and cultures in rural areas and being part of the community. Oh, I think the the position that you can then create, and it, it's, it's, I'm sure the same can be done in, this, in, in metropolitan areas, but the position you create yourself in, in the community um, and you know, I've, I've got a really good role model. I grew up in a small town on the south coast of New South Wales in Berry. Um, the pharmacist there, the owner, Ross Hobson, um, has known me since before I was born. He knows everything about me. He knows all the scratches, all the cuts, all the grazes that I've been because, you know, we'd go in and we'd get um, get first aid and wound dressing and some things. Um, so that's me, let alone you know, all the other people, all the other 2,000 people in town. Um, they know Ross. They go and see him. They talk to him about the rugby, the scores. Um, they talk to him about the weather, the fishing, the this, that. You know, then the conversation will then come back around to help. Um, so it's that rapport that you can build up in a community. And I do believe a rural community is more like it, more likely to achieve that. Um, you, yeah, you just get to know the customers. We were talking before this went on there. You know, you're going, you go down to Woolies or Coles uh, or your IGA, um, your local supermarket, and you walk past someone and they go, oh, hi, Michael, how are you going? Oh, you're out watching the rugby on the weekend. You know, you, you, um, we sponsor um, two of the rugby teams in town. Um, they know you, they see you, they appreciate your impact, input back into the community. Um, and like, small towns, that's what you can achieve. I mean, I've lived in Grafton now 18 months um, and the number of people I now know um, just keeps growing day after day. Um, and I... I can't really see how that can work in the, if you're in a big city, if you're in Melbourne, if you're in Sydney. Um, yes, you'll know some of your frequent flyers, but you, you, you don't know. You're not that part of the community as much um, unless you really push yourself. So mm -hmm. it's, it's being a part of the community, um, having that impact with people, um, that rapport uh, and, the, and the community, rural community, I think makes it so much easier. I mean, I'm a country boy through and through. I'm sitting here in my Aaron Williams boots um, and because that's who I am. Um, got farming in my family and things and, yeah, it's... it's Still a farmer. Yes, PH. That's right. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.